The John Morris Show, episode 62. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... You are now listening to The John Morris Show. My name is John Morris, Army veteran turned freelance web developer. And each week I bring you a fresh look into the latest news, advice, and next steps for the self-made web designer and developer to help you reach your dream of coding for a living faster. Thanks for giving me some of your time today. Now, let the episode begin. Today's episode is brought to you by the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on Udemy.com, where you can learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, mobile apps, and more inside one convenient course so you can shortcut the time it takes to start earning your full-time income as a web developer. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive 85% discount on the course by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. That's johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show. I'm your host, John Morris. Have a lot for you in this episode. Now before I get into that, I want to make sure if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes if you happen to have an Apple device. That helps me out a ton in terms of just you being subscribed and listening to it over there. Also, if you would be so kind to leave me a review over there, that helps even more. But it helps me, people find the podcast and helps you know me kind of move up the rankings over there. So I'd greatly appreciate that if you have me. And of course, as always, if you have an Android device, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud, and on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. And the iTunes link is johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. Now, I'm changing up a little bit with the opening. I'm not going to go into my typical diatribe that I normally do because I want to get into the segments and uh, you know, kind of help move this along a little bit more quickly so that I can get you the information that I think is important to you in a little bit more uh, of a quicker format. And of course, I'll always reserve the right if there's something I really want to talk about to do so in the opening, but... For this episode, we're just going to get right into it. So coming up in this episode, we have the future of web design in the history of architecture. This stuff always kind of fascinates me. When I first started learning about responsive web design and read the, read the Ethan Marcotte article, and he talked about adaptive architecture, and that is kind of the basis for his thinking on responsive web design, I found that incredibly fascinating. And if you look at some of the similarities and trends between architecture of kind of the past and into uh, the modern era and what we're going through in terms of web design. There are some interesting similarities there. So we're going to be looking at an article from Mike Sal over on Medium. Of course, I'll link you to that article in that segment. Uh, Very fascinating stuff. Also, in the mindset section, I'm going to be calling myself out. So if you've been one of the listeners that's been listening and saying, you know, John, you're not all peaches and cream. Uh, there's a lot of a lot about your personality that, that you could talk about. Well, that's what I'm going to do in this episode in the mindset section today. In the text section, we're going to talk about designing an app landing page in Photoshop, freelancing five powerful reasons to start saying no. This is one of the most powerful things that I think you can do. I still struggle with this But uh, I think just in general, but this is something I I teach, try to teach my kids even all the time. So five powerful reasons to start saying no. And then as always, we'll wrap up with our weekly Q&A. So that's what's coming up for the show. So be sure to stay tuned. You're listening to The John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Ebates, where you can earn cash back on your online purchases from major retailers like Amazon, eBay, Walmart.com, and more. John Morris Show listeners can get your free account by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash ebates. Welcome back to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Let's talk about the future of web design 
is hidden in the history of architecture. Now, this is an article from Mike Sal. I believe that's how you pronounce that over on medium.com. And I'll link to the article on the show notes page for this episode. That's johnmorrisonline.com slash 62. And his basic argument is that you can take a look at the history of architecture and the different periods and the kind of evolution that it went through and draw parallels to what we're going through in terms of web design. And that becomes valuable because it can give you some insight into where we might be headed. And so then you can kind of prepare yourself. So I thought this was uh, fascinating. I tended to agree with the examples that he brought up. Um, And so I wanted to run through this. So the first era that he talks about when it comes to architecture is the Neolithic age. And so this is kind of just early, early type rudimentary architecture. You would think of like Stonehenge uh, uh, is the picture he uses in in his article here. And it's, it's very crude, very rudimentary, basic type architecture. And if you you were around, you might not have been, or might not have been old enough to remember, but, but I know I was. When the World Wide Web or when the internet first started, this is essentially what it was. It was text. And that's it's all Times New Roman. And about the best you could do was... Uh, you know, was maybe some simple formatting of text with bolding and hyperlinks and headings and so forth. But it was very, very, very basic text. And that's all that you had. And so, again, you can kind of see the parallels there. So then moving on, we get into the classical era in architecture, which was about order. It was about uh, giving some definition to, you know, the design and then adding maybe some embellishment. So as he puts it here, the classical period refined proportions and hierarchies, introducing clearly divided sections that served different purposes. And if you look at the internet, and again, going through looking, being able to see his examples is helpful. So you'll definitely want to go check out the article. But you know his, his example is a, a, a page of yahoo.com where you started to see it wasn't just a straight you know wall of text and and people writing like it was early on it started to develop some form you started to have images you started to you know think about where you put things where you put the search box and how you ordered your links and started to give some basic definition and structure to a web page and so you can see again the parallels of kind of that basic, simple order and proportion, making things just kind of on a basic level look better. Uh, you can see those those parallels between architecture and what's going on in the World Wide Web. Next, we get into the Romanesque period, which is thicker forms and rounder edges. So while softening the edges, the Romanesque period also thickened the walls and dividers and menus and buttons to produce bulkier heavier, more clickable forms. And so this is, you know, when you probably, maybe if you're younger, this is more about the time when you might have come online. You think of the iMac from Apple. That's the picture he has here. You start to see gradients come into play. You start to see tabs and so forth. And you see a little bit more of an attempt to bring some actual style to it. So it's not just you know, it's not the Neolithic area where it's just basic text. It's not classical where you have some order and proportion, but there's really not a ton of embellishment. Here, you're starting to get some more embellishment. You're starting to get colored kind of headers. You see more imagery and so forth. And so you see it kind of uh, advancing in that sense. Next, you have the Gothic period. So this is where it got really ornate and kind of mesmerizing. So and the parallel to web design, and, and again, this may be of something you have seen. I I remember I've even tried to uh, attempted at building sites like this that were really kind of ornate. And it was almost about showing off what you could do. Um, and so this was kind of where CSS came into the in, into the frame, and you could really start doing things. And this is a heavy flash period to to really try and make it ornate and kind of over the top, and maybe a little bit. 
uh, edgy with the designs. And so we kind of, is almost a revolt against the simplicity that we saw in some of the, the earlier periods. Then you get into the Renaissance period. And his claim is that this is where, in terms of web design, this is where we're at today. And the Renaissance period was about being clean, logical, and precise. And as he says, it's uncanny how similar the recent flat design movement is to the Renaissance. The Renaissance Renaissance architecture called for a return to a classical logic. Simple geometric forms replaced ornate complexity and designs became cleaner. And this is this is exactly what we're going through now. You're seeing kind of the the cleaning up of web design from a, a past that was somewhat ornate with all of the images and the, you know all the the heavy kind of flash animation and and uh, the the you know just the trying to make it as ornate as we possibly could flat design and, and it's been driven by mobile has been kind of a revolt against that okay so those are kind of looking at the those periods in architecture and tying them to periods in web design that we've seen or, or transitions that we've seen. Now is where we kind of get into the fun part where we can start to look potentially at the future. And so next in architecture was the Baroque period, which was about twisting all of the rules. And so he says, being so logical and precise is fun for only so long. Eventually we'll just start breaking the rules. Now in architecture, that meant literally breaking apart classic elements and twisting them into complex forms. Uh, and so compared with the Renaissance intellectualism, Baroque designs were emotional and theatric. And his tie to web design is basically to be determined. And he thinks this is going to happen around 2017, where we've started creating all these clean sites and we spent a lot of time being very logical and precise. And for web developers, that's, you know, we love that kind of stuff because most of us are kind of very logical thinkers and like precision. But there's going to, as there always is, there's often a revolt against the current period. So he believes that you'll see people, and it's not necessarily going to be designers, developers, although you probably have some of that, but it'll be certain clients and so forth who want to break those rules because they want to stand out in, in some way. And you, you kind of, you know, you do kind of see this already uh, a little bit in terms of a lot of sites are starting to look really, really similar and they look good and they look clean and they look fresh, but they all kind of start to have a similar look. And when that happens, then you get people who want to stand out and they want to revolt against that. And so that's what the Baroque period is all about. Next in architecture then came the neoclassical period, which is hearkening back to the past. So he says, everything comes full circle. Once we progress enough, we start to glorify our classical beginnings and go full retro. It just takes time. Neoclassical web design is a ways ahead. He says roughly 2022, maybe even further. But that old Yahoo web website, website still looks pretty lame to us, not sacred. But six or seven years from now, it just might be cool again. So, and that's kind of the end of his prediction. So looking ahead, again, obviously nothing's set in stone, but looking ahead, if we're mirroring architecture, we can uh, expect or at least be on the lookout for a period uh, mirroring the Baroque period where it's a twisting of all of the rules. And then as we get through that, you know, people probably start to revolt against that a little bit and we'll start to get into a more neoclassical period. We start to hearken back to the past. And, and, and so that gives you some idea of the potential, what, what could be ahead for us uh, in terms of web design. So I thought this was very interesting. I, I do tend to uh, agree with what he's saying here. You know, I mentioned in the opening, when I first started learning responsive web design, I read kind of the seminal article by Ethan Marcotte on a list apart. And he talks about adaptive architecture an architecture that adapts to its environment. And that's kind of was the, the impetus for his thinking about responsive web design. And I really saw the connection back then. And 
I, I see the connection here as well. The thing about this is people have already done a lot of what we're doing. And what I mean by that is design has been around for a long time. You know, it, it's not new to the web. And so designers have been going through what we're going through for centuries, you know, for millennia, really. And so there's, there's, there's not necessarily anything new under the sun. And you can kind of get an idea of what's going to be coming by looking at what has already passed. And so we don't necessarily always have to recreate the wheel in terms of how we look at things. Now, obviously, the web is a different medium, but a lot of the end goals are really the same. And so when you when you recognize that, then you can start to see how there can be these kinds of parallels and you can get an idea of what might be to come. So the advice out of all this is maybe don't get quite so attached to all of the precision and cleanliness that we're seeing in web design right now, because there's a good possibility in the near future that the trend will be to buck that system and go for more emotional and theatric. And so just be on the lookout for it. And when you see it happening, then you have some sense that it's coming and you have an idea of how you might be able to adapt yourself to that. And you maybe even look into the Baroque architecture and and what people at that time were doing with architecture and how you maybe can apply that conceptually to web design. All right, coming up next, I'm going to be calling myself out in the mindset section. So you definitely want to stay tuned for that. Also later, designing an app landing page in Photoshop, five powerful reasons to start saying no, and our weekly Q&A. You're listening to The John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. John Morris here for the complete web developer course by Rob Percival on udemy.com. Now here's the deal with this. Do you ever get frustrated constantly searching the internet for tutorials to learn how to code? Are you worried that learning how to code is taking longer than it should? Do you just wish you could learn everything in one convenient place so you can get on with earning your living as a web developer? Well, that is exactly why Rob created the Complete Web Developer Course. Everything you need to know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, APIs, and mobile apps in one convenient course. And you know it works because Rob has over 183,000 students and the most five-star ratings of any course on Udemy. Now here's the best part. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive, and this is just for you guys only, an exclusive 85% discount on the course simply by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. So look. Quit pulling your hair out trying to find good tutorials on the web. Do the smart thing and hit up my man Rob's complete web developer course with the slick 85% discount right now. Visit johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc and you'll be all set. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, I'm going to be calling myself out a little bit. So I was... Here's the kind of the story behind this. I was going through YouTube comments. So I get, I, I mean, 20, 30, 40, 50, somewhere in that range comments on my YouTube videos a day. And I get, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40, it just depends on the day, emails a day and Twitter tweets and face, you know, there's probably in a day I probably get anywhere on the low end, maybe 50 to the high end, 100, 120 messages a day from people who have seen YouTube videos or whatever. And so I try to clear those out as best I can. And I was going through YouTube comments. And if you've put any YouTube videos online or just hung around any YouTube videos, you'll know that they tend to be the most aggressive is the word I will use. And so I was going through those to, uh, today and there were you know there's always a decent number of what you might call negative comments on there and i found myself in a state of mind where 
the way I would put it is, I don't necessarily think that I was actually thinking this, but when I really dig deep into it, this is what's underneath all of it. And that is, I kind of felt like maybe somebody owed me something. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, I create a lot of free tutorials on YouTube and, and put those out there. I have almost 200 or so videos on YouTube now, a bunch of stuff on my blog and so forth. So lots and lots of free stuff that I put out there. And I obviously do um, promote paid products and so forth. But again, I create a lot of free stuff. I think I can say that. And so I I kind of found myself in this mindset where it's like, these people should be nice to me, right? Why why are they, you know, why are they being so mean to me when I'm doing my best to to give away all of this free information and so forth? And I found myself getting a little frustrated or discouraged by it um, because I just, it was hard for me to understand people being so mean and so negative when, you know, it's not like they were paying for the YouTube video, right? So again, I started finding myself devolving into that. And I caught myself because here's the reality of it. And this is maybe the point that I want to make for you. Um, but especially for myself, is nobody owes you anything, right? I am the one that chooses to put stuff out for free on YouTube and on my blog and so forth. I don't have to do that. I don't have to be sitting here having this conversation. And I am grateful, believe me, I am more than grateful that there are people who each week give me some of their time to listen to what I have to say, even if they disagree with what I have to say, or they think I'm an idiot because of what I said. The fact that there's, you know, however many thousands, tens of thousands, whatever the actual number ultimately is, there's that many people who are willing to listen to this. So I have to, I have to constantly remember and remind myself what the context of all of this. Nobody owes listening to me. Nobody owes me anything because I put out free information. And oftentimes I find that when I dig into what they're saying, they tend to have a point. Now I may disagree with the point, but they're not just most of the time, there are some, but most of the time, they're not just angrily spouting nonsense. They're actually making a point. I can say that's one of the things about this particular community, the people who happen to watch my YouTube videos and so forth, is that when there is negative criticism, most of the time, there's a valid point in there. Again, I, I often disagree with the point, but it's a valid point. And... I appreciate the fact that you and they care enough to even say something. Because if they didn't care, they wouldn't say anything. You know, for example, I had somebody who said that they think the music at the beginning of my show is stupid and annoying. Now, when I first read that, I was like, well, I like the music at the beginning. But when I started to think about it more, I'm like, well, that's my taste, right? That That's not necessarily their taste. They may want to, and they may not want to listen to the music of the beginning. They would just want to get right into it. And that's all valid. Now, I like it and it's my show, so I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm still going to do the music. It's not like I'm going to change it, but they have a valid point in the fact that they took the time to say something. I appreciate. Now, obviously, we'd, I'd love it if they were maybe a little nicer about it, but I'll take the feedback however it comes. And I think that's the way that you have to think about what we're really doing here. See, nobody owes you anything. Nobody has to listen to you. Nobody has to hire you. Nobody has to appreciate you. The market is what it is, and people want what they want. And if you put something out and they don't respond to it, if they don't like it, it's way 
too easy to blame them, to say it's their fault. But the reality is, is they're your audience. They're your market. And if they don't like it, you're the one that's out. Now, I see this a lot with web developers in terms of looking at clients and getting hired on freelance sites and complaining about, oh, well, clients are all just dumb. They don't pay attention to this, that, or the other. It's way too easy to do that. And I can promise you, if you keep on doing that, you're going to get nowhere in your career. Because you won't take the time to actually look at yourself and what you're doing to make the necessary changes that you need to make in order to get the results that you want. The market is what it is, and it wants what it wants. Absolutely, you can try and educate the market. But to sit back and judgmentally say they're all stupid and they don't know anything and they're this and they're that and the other, they want what they want. Your job is to serve the market. So, I... I'm looking at myself in the mirror when I say this. (laughs) And I have to constantly remind myself of what's really going on here. And if I haven't, I do want to make sure and take a moment and say thank you. Even to the people who criticize and call me names, while I think you could maybe be a little nicer about it, I appreciate the fact that you listen. And I appreciate the fact that you care enough to say something. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about designing an app landing page in Photoshop. And I'm going to, again, we're going to be referencing an article. I I like to point you to these kind of articles that I find that I think are really, really good. And we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about two parts of it. One, I want to cover some of the basic steps that they go through in the tutorial to give you a framework for building this kind of thing. And then you can go into the full tutorial on their site if you want to do that. But I also want to talk about what I think are some of the more important points, which is the elements of kind of psychology and salesmanship behind it. Um, because I, to me, those things really stand out about when you're building your web pages. It's not just about, you know, like we were talking about before, it's not just about the logical structure you know, this one, that one, the the next one. And there's just this way of doing it that's based off of like web design standards and so forth. A lot of the pages you build, you're building are meant to sell something, whether it's an idea, it's an app, it's a product, a book, whatever. They're meant to sell something. And so understanding the psychology of building a web page that is persuasive is important. So I want to go into that a little bit. So that's what's coming up next. Later, we'll get into the five, five powerful reasons to start saying no. And as always, our weekly Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Hey, everybody. As you probably know, I constantly harp on using content to help you grow your audience and build your credibility as a web developer. But your web presence is nothing without a great hosting provider. So if you haven't yet, get your website up and running with a fast, reliable, and well-supported web host. Bluehost for less than six bucks a month. You can check it out and get Bluehost's best price over at johnmorrisonline.com slash bluehost. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. In this segment, we're going to talk about designing an app landing page in Photoshop. And I this stuck out to me because obviously mobile apps are a huge thing right now. You maybe even are building your own mobile app and need to design a landing page for it. or This is something that a lot of clients might want for you to do. And so I want to give you a little bit in terms of when you go to actually build that, what that might look like. Now, I'm going to be referencing an article over from Tuts Plus. I'll link to that article on the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 62 so you can go through the full tutorial i mean it's a very long tutorial um, but you create a really nice looking landing page for your app now 
I want to give you the basic steps. I'm going to do that first, but I also want to talk about something that I think web designers think maybe a little bit less about, which is the psychology of actually building one of these pages to be persuasive. Because when you're building an app landing page, you want people to install the app. And so there's kind of a psychology behind how you do that and create a persuasive page. And I can tell you, if as a developer, you can make the pitch that not only do you know how to build the page, but you follow a proven formula for making the page persuasive, that's going to appeal to clients. Being able to say that you can create a page based off of persuasive principles um, that actually is going to get people to install the app is way more appealing to a client than you saying you're an expert in HTML and CSS. So I, I want to cover some of that stuff because I think it's really important. Now, First off, let's start by breaking down this page a little bit. So the first part of the page is obviously the header and the above the fold content. And so this is really the first thing that you're going to to build. In this particular instance, this is because it's an app landing page and there's one goal, which is to get them to install the app. This is probably going to be a one page website. And so that changes things a little bit. So for example, in what would normally be the navigation bar, you're probably not going to have any navigation because there's no other pages to go to. Now you could put in navigation up at the top and that allows them to automatically scroll to different parts of the page. That's definitely an option. But in this particular case, what they do is they have the logo over on the left like normal, but then over to the right, they have an actual download the app button where you would normally see a menu over on the right-hand side. And I think that's a good option because this content above what we call the fold, which is the the everything that you see before you ever start scrolling, it's prime real estate. You know, the numbers of people who actually scroll below that first fold are really, really low. Now that is changing with mobile uh with mobile a little bit because it's so easy to scroll on a mobile device and pretty much any page you're going to have to scroll with but it's still pretty high as of right now. So you want to make sure that you have the button for them to be able to download that app above the fold on on basically every screen. And putting in the menu like that is going to ensure that. So first part is the header, so that includes the menu and then kind of the big what we'd call a hero unit at the top. In this particular case, it's got a big uh, background image. It's got a picture of a phone with the app. And then on the left side, it has a headline, a little bit of text, and the button to download the app. The key part here is, again, thinking about above the fold. You want to make sure that you are making your most compelling offer. You're, you're summarizing the offer and hitting them full forced with with that offer above the fold. You want to make sure all of that is above the fold so that they can see a, a product shot of the app. They can see a compelling headline that gives them a reason to want to install the app, maybe a little bit of text or some bullets that build upon that reason, and then the button to be able to download that app. All of that needs to be above the fold. It needs to be on that first snapshot when someone lands on the page. Now, you need to make sure and check it in multiple screens too because if you're like me, you know, I have a big 32-inch monitor that runs at full HD. There's a lot above the fold on my monitor that's not above the fold on, say, a laptop. So you want to make sure and check it on multiple screens. Now, oftentimes it's difficult to get everything above the fold on a mobile device but what I typically do is when we get down to like an actual phone size uh, for your responsive design, I'll get rid of the product shot. I'll keep the headline, the text, and the button. And you can usually squeeze all of that above the fold. And that's simply because it, the, the image, it doesn't matter if you have the image, it's pretty much going to take up most of that above the fold space. And so that's all they're going to see. So I usually hide that. So uh, those are kind of the key elements with uh, uh, the the header and the header is really going to be the most important part 
because it's what most people are going to see. And that's the part that needs to sell them on the app because they're likely not to, it's very likely they won't scroll. All right, next down below that, then we're going to get into the benefits area. And so this is essentially kind of expanding on what you talked about in the header. And you want to, you want to hit them with your number one sales point. So if you're building this for someone else, then they'll likely know what their main sales point is for their app. You know, for example, Instagram. You know, I I don't know how they would say it, but it's essentially based around photo sharing, right? Messenger is based around messaging. Whatever that benefit, most compelling benefit is, that's what you need to put next in your benefits area. And so you you find a way to put that into a headline, a little bit of text, and then again, a download button. You want to, you're going to see when you look at this design that the download button is actually in four different spots throughout this design. Um, and it could probably even be in more really. So you want to make sure and have that everywhere so people don't miss it. You'd be surprised how many people miss stuff like that or how many websites you go to where it's like impossible to find the download button. So you want it prominently placed everywhere. So Again, the benefits area, it's going to be a headline, a little blurb of text, and then a button, and it's your main selling point, your most compelling argument for downloading the app. Next, you're going to get into the features. So you don't want to you don't want to hit them too hard over the head with the features, but you want to make sure and give them, again, your key, the key features of your app. And include a product shot that kind of illustrates the the gist of what your particular app does. So the one that that they're using here, you know, it looks like it's a kind of a photo editing type app. And so it shows a product shot of a picture before and after, and it shows some of the editing tools that are available in the app and so forth. And so it kind of gives you an idea, okay, that's what the app is about. It's about photo editing. And then it hits you with some features that are important and the technique I like to use when when doing this is what I call the fab technique. Now, I learned this selling shoes when I first uh, got out of high school and was in college. I worked at a shoe store um, and did really well actually selling shoes. But we were taught what's called the fab technique, which stands for feature, advantage, benefit. And so you want to start with the feature because you want to start with something physical and tangible that they can see and they can look at. And you want to then parlay that into the ultimate benefit that that's going to bring them. And when you can hit them with multiple features that have multiple benefits and you follow this technique, then it allows the, it builds the value of that product in their mind. So the feature might be, so for example, to go back to shoes, the, the example I always like to use is this particular shoe has a polyurethane outsole. Now, polyurethane outsole is a feature. And it's physical. You can see it. You can look at it. You can touch it. You can bend the shoe. Right? You can. It's it's real and tangible. So you start with that. So that's the feature. But that alone means nothing to them, right? What's a polyurethane outsole? What 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 does that matter? And so that's when you go into the advantage. What's the advantage of this feature over different ways that it, it could have been done? So a polyurethane outsole has the advantage of being both lightweight and durable and flexible. So what that and and so those are advantages. It's lightweight, it's flexible, and it's durable. More lightweight than rubber, more flexible than rubber, and as durable as rubber. That's the way we would say it. So those are advantages or maybe disadvantage nullifiers, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. And then those lead right into the benefits. You notice I kind of started to go right into it without even kind of thinking about it, but the advantage of it being lighter is you don't have a big heavy rubber sole that you're dragging around everywhere that makes you tired. And if you do a lot of walking, do a lot of, you know, running around at work or standing, then you're just not going to feel as tired and dead and your leg, legs won't feel as heavy uh, at the end of the day. That's a, those are benefits, right? Um, a more flexible sole is it going to feel more comfortable on your foot. It's not going to feel stiff and rigid when you're walking around and it's not going to take a bunch of time to break in. Uh, and rub your feet raw during that break-in period and so forth. Again, those are all benefits. The durable part maybe seems a little self-explanatory, but 
You know, it's not going to a shoe that you're not going to come back in two months and need to replace because even though it's not rubber, it's as durable. So it's going to last you a long time. They'll be comfortable from the start. They'll be lightweight. They'll be flexible, etc. Now, if you're in the market for some comfy shoes, it's a pretty compelling argument. And it's based off something that is tangible. And that's one feature, right? That was just one feature. Then we would go to the leather outsole. Then we would go to the cushioned insole. Then we would go on to, you know, all of the different features that each shoe had. That's the kind of thing that you want to do with your app. What are the features? What are the advantages of those? And what are the, how does that ultimately benefit the end user? By the way, something really good to implement into the building of your app. So uh, if you haven't thought that through when you're actually building your app, something to think through. All right, next is going to be the testimonials area. And the key thing with the testimonials are twofold. One, they need to be real. Uh, I think that goes without saying, but in case that's not clear, they need to be real testimonials. And they need to show some sort of transformation. So instead of someone saying, oh, I tried the app and it was really cool. Well, that's nice, but you want to show how it changed people's lives. Right, because that's that's ultimately what people are after. They want their we install and do things because we want our lives to be different as a result of it. And so it's important that you show that transformation uh, in your testimonial. So you would say, you know, you try to get people, and you can't tell people what to say, but you know, when you do your testimonials and collect them, you can maybe ask questions in a certain way to elicit certain types of responses. And so you would want to say, you know, before I started using XYZ app, I was, you know, I was miserable and here's why, blah, blah, blah. And then I installed the app and because of this, this, and this, it just works so much better and now I'm happy, right? You show, you show that ultimate transformation from one place to another because that's what people are after. And then we wrap it up with the footer. It's kind of a standard footer. Again, you have the download button in the footer as well. You have links to you know, about the company and support links and social links and legal links and so forth. So you're going to have all that. So you'll definitely want to check out this uh, page over on Tuts Plus. Again, you can go johnmorrisonline.com slash 62 for the show notes page. A A couple other key or important parts of this that I thought were interesting. They actually talk about the uh, IATA principle, which is attention, interest, desire, action which is essentially how most you know, copywriters and persuasive writers and so forth think about writing their persuasive copy is following this model, generally speaking, as it's about getting their attention first, then building interest, turning that interest into desire, and then getting them to take action. Also talks about A-B testing, how you should be testing your landing page uh, because your first guess is probably almost always isn't going to be right. So you want to make sure and test it. Plus over time, you know, what works can change. So you want to make sure you're constantly testing so that it's, you're keeping up with those trends, you're getting better and so forth. There's also a link to a really neat um, Samsung Galaxy S5 mock-up that you can download. So this is a, this is for your product shots and so forth. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then there is this essentials of high conversion section. So it talks about a killer headline, persuasive subheadlines, pictures, explanation, and so forth. So there's, looks about like eight of those that it goes through that, um, you know, they've kind of found to, to work really well. And so they implement those in the landing pages. They show you how to build. So that is designing an app landing page in Photoshop. Again, this is a a tutorial over on Tuts Plus that I thought uh, would be helpful for you. I'm going to link to it again at the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 62. Coming up next, we're going to talk about five powerful reasons to start saying no as a freelancer. And later, as always, we're getting to our Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. So I just realized something. I'm always harping on how important creating blog content is for getting new clients to your web design business. But what if you don't have a blog and you're not sure how to get one set up? Well, 
don't worry because I've just created a new tutorial on how to start your blog in less than 15 minutes. So in less than 15 minutes from now, you could have your blog up and running and creating content that's going to help you attract new clients for your web design business. In order to take this tutorial, you want to head on over to johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Again, that's johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Head on over and let's get your blog started today. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. So we're going to talk about the five powerful reasons to start saying no as a freelancer. And this is based, again, on an article over on Freelancers Union. I'll link to the article, johnmorrisonline.com slash 62. That's the show notes page for this episode where you can get all the links and everything. And goes through some... You know, some interesting ideas of why you would want to say no in your freelance business. Now, I think the ability to say no and knowing when to say no and when to say yes is one of the most important skills that you can learn as a freelancer because early on in my career, I didn't say no to anybody and it it really becomes a problem because you get yourself into into things that you really have no business being a part of. And you get yourself uh, buried in way too much work or you can um, because of your inability to say no. What you will find out is funny. I was talking to my older brother about this. He runs a photo booth business. And last year he had, you know, in getting his business get going and so forth, he had done favors essentially for people he knew and gave them did the photo booth at a, a discount. And you'll find that anything that you do, but especially web design because it's so big right now, that you'll have people who want you to do work for them. Oh, you do web design? Hey, can you could probably work on our, this and that, this uh, uh, site, the other, whatever. What you'll find is what they mean is that you can do it for free. <laughs> and so I was talking to him and he had you know done some favors last year. Now it's coming around this year and those people came back and were essentially wanting the same favors. And, you know, having been now a year at it, involved in it, he had learned a little bit more about saying no. And so he's kind of had to start to, you know, uh, <laughs> flex his muscles a little bit and say no. And it's just interesting the reaction that you get, especially from people who you know and otherwise maybe you think of as friends and so forth, the way they react when you want to charge for what you do for your work. So uh, this is a very, very powerful, one of the most important things that you can learn how to do. So this is talking about different times in which you would say no. The first one is the one that probably gets most people when they first start out. So he says, say no when it's not a paid gig. And so there's a time to say yes to free gigs. But if you really care... And that's if you really care about it or it will add real value to your skills or portfolio and you have the time and you have the time. But you have to ask yourself if you really need to do it because you are a professional and your time is valuable. And you need to to realize that, especially as a freelancer and freelance web designer, oftentimes you're going to be getting paid by the hour. Your time is, is, you know, directly, you can directly account for how much it's worth and it's, it's fairly valuable. So you can take some free gigs at first to build up your reputation, to build up your name, to build up your portfolio, to get yourself out there, to start networking, to get referrals. Those are all good reasons, but you know, you need to really analyze it. Do I need to be doing this? And if I d- don't, then I need to be able to say no. And you should very quickly move from doing free stuff at first into doing only paid stuff. Next, is it if it you say no if it's too much work? And this is going to as he says, this is going to be a personal designation for you. But you really should try and set 
some chosen work hours, like some limits of your time, because it's too easy to just sit for 16 hours a day at your computer. Not only are you going to be less productive because you're just spending so much time there that you think you have all this time and you end up wasting a bunch of time. It's bad for your health. And if you have a family, it's bad for your family life. So you want to try and set some fairly strict boundaries on your time. And if a a particular project, it could be paid, but if it's going to be too much work, then it's probably not worth it. I can tell you, I do this all the time. This is my number one factor of whether I take a job or not. You don't have, here's the thing. Here's developers kind of have this idealistic mentality. Every job you take doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a hero. Every job you take It doesn't have to be some mission impossible. You can take easy jobs. It's okay. In fact, you can only take easy jobs. In fact, I recommend you only take easy jobs. Uh, you know, if if there's something out there that's a challenge for you that you really want to dig into and you want to, you know, you really want to go for it, and that's the one thing that you're going to be able to focus on for a certain amount of time, then by all means, go for it. But make sure that whoever paying you to do it understands what it is they're asking you to do and they're paying you to not do anything else so that you don't have to try and uh, take on this world-beating project and at the same time find other ways to bring an income in the meantime. If it's that big and challenging of a project, then they should pay you for it. And when it comes to your day-to-day work, the stuff that you're going to be doing on a daily basis where you're not digging into these world-changing projects, It's okay for them to be easy. They should be easy. It should be something that you're really good at doing. The easier they are for you, the better you're going to deliver for your clients. It's better for your clients for you to do easy work because you do a better job. Now, again, if you start getting, there's the difference. If you start getting bored, then yeah, change it up. But remember, you're a professional. This is a job. This is work. And so if you find yourself only being able to do work that you're excited about and that you're getting bored with what you're doing and so forth, you need to reevaluate what you're doing and you need to step back and take a look at the big picture of what you could be doing. You know, you could be out digging ditches, right? So you got to keep all that stuff in mind, but don't be afraid to take easy jobs. Next, it's not what you're worth. So this was a big one for me early on. I took a lot of jobs that just didn't pay well. And you do have to do some of this to get through, to kind of slog through getting your name out there and building a reputation and so forth. But you need to make sure that you're getting paid what you feel you're worth. And really, at the end of the day, you're the only one that can decide that. Again, this is something I do all the time now. I mean, it actually happened the other day. Uh, I had built a website for someone I knew and they asked me, you know, they they knew other people in their industry who'd be interested in similar sites and they asked me what I would charge to build that for these other people. And I told them, and the price I told them, I said, look, this is probably more than they're going to want to pay, but it's not worth it to me for less than this. It's not worth it for me to, you know, figure out who they are and get to to know them and, you know, figure out what kind of site to build and go through the whole rigmarole that you have to go through for less than the price I quoted them. You know, and I may not get any jobs as a result of that, but that's fine because I'm not going to be doing work that's less than what I feel like I deserve or what less than what it's worth to me. So... Uh, As says here, Joel Kletke says, I think that's a mistake freelancers make. If you're thinking of sharing your rates as a means of saying, hey, I'm cheaper, you're going to get the kind of work that is cheap and work with the kind of clients that are cheap. And that's definitely not something, that's not a position you want to be in because it can be a bit of a nightmare. 
Next, the reason you should say no is to protect your health. Again, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but you you don't want to be sitting at your desk 16 hours a day uh, because it's just terrible for you. It's bad for your health. I actually went through this a couple years ago where I was doing a lot of freelance work and business was going great, but I was getting so frustrated and stressed out because I was overworked. I couldn't say no to the money, essentially. <laughs> really, it wasn't even the client. It was just, you know, when someone offers you $5,000 to build a website that you could build in a few weeks, it's hard to say no. But if you don't say no, then you just keep going and going and going and piling on work. And I was getting, you know, multiple clients on top of each other uh, to where I was working on, you know, multiple projects at one time. And it, it starts, you know, I was making a lot of money, but it was uh, overworking me and I was getting really stressed out. And at the end of that year, I actually ended up kind of turning off a lot of my freelance stuff for a little while. I told some clients that I wasn't going to be working with them anymore um, and, you know, made some changes because I knew it wasn't sustainable. And so that's a really good reason to say no. The final reason then is to get the work you want. And so the way the saying goes, and I've heard this before, you have to learn that saying no to something means saying yes to something else. And I found this to be true in what I do that oftentimes when I say no to one project, that's not a great fit. It's not too long after that, that another project shows up that is a great fit that had I taken that first one, I wouldn't have been able to say yes to the second one. And that's what you have to remember. Now, again, if you're just starting out and nobody's sending your work your way, then yeah, you're probably going to have to take some stuff that you wouldn't otherwise take. But as you grow, you have to learn how to get more strategic and not be afraid to use that no, uh, because it can saying no to one thing can open you up to other things that are going to be better for you. All right, so that is the article, Five Powerful Reasons to Start Saying No. Again, I'll link to this article over on the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 62. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. A quick question for you. Are you running a WordPress site? If so, then I want to recommend to you the premium WordPress hosting service, WP Engine. Now, what makes WP Engine different than a lot of web hosts out there is that it's designed specifically for WordPress with advanced caching and security implementation to keep your WordPress website up and running and running as fast as possible. And we all know how important speed is on the web these days. So if you're running WordPress and you don't have WP Engine yet, be sure to give it a look. You can get their best price at johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine, all one word. Check them out. You're going to love your WordPress hosting. Welcome back to the John Moore Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, we're going to do our weekly Q&A. So I have some questions over on YouTube that I'm going to be answering in the show. Now, if you have a question for me, you can send it to me, john at johnmorrisonline.com, or you can ask it on YouTube or tweet me on Twitter at JP Morris. All right, our first question comes from Shakat Hassan from Utah, YouTube. Hopefully I said that correctly. It says, hi, John. I am Hassan from Bangladesh. I've completed my Upwork account 100%, but I can't seem to get any work yet. I want to get work from Upwork. I think I have to learn more about freelancing so I can improve myself and get work online. Now, every single time that I hear one of these questions, what I kind of come back with is what are you doing outside of the freelance site to build your name, right? You can't just put up a profile and think that that's, you're just going to suddenly start getting work or that even going out and bidding on jobs is the only thing that you can do. 
if you're if you just start out on a freelance site and you have no job history, you have no testimonials, you don't have any of that stuff and you don't have any that you've carried over from doing, you know, having been a freelancer and you just started on this site for the first time. If you don't have any of that stuff, then yeah, when you bid on jobs, it's going to be hard to get work. I mean, think about it from their side. You literally have no history. And so you have to recognize that. Now, that said, there are ways that you can get over that. And so start creating YouTube videos, start writing blog posts, answering questions on Stack Overflow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Content is your trump card. It's how you can build trust in advance and then push people to your profile. Right. And so when they go over and they look at your profile and decide to hire you, it's not, they're not doing it with no context. Now they have context about you. They've learned from you on some sort of tutorial or whatever. And they have some understanding of who you are. And they're there to hire you and nobody else. That's what you want. And then as you get that job history on the freelance sites, then yes, people will start to invite you to project. Yes, you'll bid on jobs and people will take your bid because you now have testimonials, you have job history, you have ratings. Okay. So don't just tie yourself to the freelance site. And I say this all the time and people probably get sick of me saying it, but I get these questions almost every single day. So what are you doing outside of the freelance site to build your name and get business? That's the question to ask yourself. Next question comes from Mr. Mike on YouTube. And he says, new to PHP, not new to programming. I use Engine for a gaming clan. Now, is my PHP something that's like a third site I would send data to? Or does Engine have to have my PHP installed? And technically... I mean, technically it could be either, but I would say the standard system setup is that engine is, looks essentially like a CMS, but it's for gaming. And so that's going to have a database associated with it. I mean, look, I've actually went over to the site and looked through it all and as robust as it is, I don't, there's really no other way that they would have done this. So it's going to have some sort of database associated with it. If I had to guess, it was it'd probably be MySQL, but I don't necessarily know off the top of my head. And so then, yes, you would have to be able to get access to that. Now, I think there's probably a good chance that you could here. I didn't necessarily see that in the list of features. However, that's probably not a feature that most people are going to care about. So there's a good chance that you might be able to get access to the back end and be able to get access directly to the database. Even if not, Engine, I noticed, does have an API. And so that would probably be the primary way in which you're going to interact with the system if you want to make modifications is through their API. And I would imagine if you approach them about a database, that's probably what they're going to tell you is to use the API. So I would look more into the API and maybe, you know, if you can submit a support ticket and ask them, depending on what it is that you want to do. Not exactly 100% sure what you want to do, but using their API would probably be the way to go. All right, our last question is from Iota Teddy from YouTube and essentially getting a parse syntax error. And so I actually looked at the error here and you can see in the error, it says syntax error, unexpected, and then it says function underscore construct and then it says T string expecting variable T variable. So just looking at the error, you don't have a space between the word function and the start of your the name of your function, which in this case is double underscore construct. So because there's no space there, then that that's the first part of the syntax error. The second error I see here is that you don't have a double underscore for construct. You only have a single underscore and it should be two. So you should be able to just put a space in there and add a second uh, underscore in there and be good to go. Now I want to point something out. Um, Most of the time with these errors, 
you know, they, if you can read into them a little bit, they'll tell you exactly what's going on. In this particular case, it says it right in the air. Now, I'm not trying to get on you or anything like that, but, you know, you, you really got to look through these errors and see what it's trying to tell you. So it, it says it's unexpected, um, you know, string, essentially, it was looking for, you know, something different than that. So again, just looking at the error there, there's, there should be a space between function and the start of your, your construct, um, the name of the function, right? So that should get you all set. All right, that'll wrap it up for the questions today. Now, if you have a question, again, you can be sure to email me at john at johnmorrisonline.com. Hit me up on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube, or over on Twitter at JP Morris. If you do me a favor, if you like this episode, be sure to like it so that I know this is kind of the content you're after. If you know anybody you'd benefit from it, whether it's you know just someone individually you know, or maybe a Facebook group or a Google Plus community that would get something out of this video, then I would appreciate you sharing it with them. And if you haven't yet, then be sure to subscribe, obviously so that you never miss an episode. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the show. Thanks for watching. We'll talk to you next time. Hey, everybody, here's a quick one for you. We all know how important creating blog content is to attract new clients to your web design business. But oftentimes, those first few members of your audience can be difficult to get. Well, I want to help try and get you over that hump and help you get your first few followers. Now, I have an audience of over 20,000 YouTube subscribers, email list subscribers, and roughly 30,000 visitors to my website each and every month. And I'd have no problem promoting your website to that audience and helping you get those first few visitors. Now, to get the details on this, you'll have to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity, but you'll need to do it before you actually start your blog. So head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity and let me help you get those first few visitors and those first few members of your audience.